HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides. So there's this family that live across the hallway from me in my building here in Brooklyn, a straight couple and two little girls. And I only say straight because, you know, not necessarily, but they have these two little girls named Anna and Samantha. And um, I, they're little. I have no idea how old they are. I can never tell that sort of stuff because... My parenting genes were never activated, so I, I'm not so good at it. But I think they're they're like around four and six, maybe, you know, little, cute. Not toddlers, not tweens, still pretty cute. And they're very chatty and sociable. And because we live in a building that's a former factory, as I mentioned last week, we have these very, very long hallways. And the kids in the building all love to play out in the hallways outside of their apartments because I guess it's sort of like their front yard like playing out in the street or your front yard in the suburbs. And even my niece, Soph, when she was little and she would come visit, always loved to go out in the hallway and play out there. There's something kind of irresistible about it. I mean, sometimes I'll just go out there and run up and down the hall too, like just, you know, to blow off some steam or I'll take out my princess scooter and I'll ride a few laps up and down the hall while I wait for my grilled cheese sandwich to be done. You know, we all do it. So Anna and Samantha, as I said, they're very sociable and they like to talk. And so every time they trap me, not trap me, every time I walk by them in the hallway, I stop and I chat with them for a minute because I find them kind of amusing and entertaining. And because I barely interact with kids, especially little kids in my life, like at all, I find them kind of amusing for, you know, a few minutes a day at least. So the other day I was coming down the hall and uh, the littler one, 
Anna or Samantha. I can never remember who's who. I don't know. Um, she was out there without her sister, um, and she was spinning herself around in a circle really, really fast. Remember doing that? You put your arms out, and you just spin and spin. And so I stopped, and I watched her for a second, and then she stopped spinning, and she started stumbling woozily around like a little tiny drunk in a princess dress, and then fell onto the floor in a heap. And so I asked her if she was spinning on purpose to make herself so dizzy that she would fall down, and she grinned with her little gap tooth grin and nodded her little curly head and said, yeah. And I told her that I loved to do that too when I was little, make myself fall down from spinning. And she said, can I see your apartment? Which is what those two always want to do. They love to look in everybody else's apartments on the floor, which actually I kind of like to do too. But I said no, and I went inside and I left her to her spinning because I didn't have time for her. Now, little Anna or Samantha, whichever one she is, doesn't matter. She has that uniquely unique to childhood unselfconsciousness that small kids have. She doesn't mind making herself fall down because she's not self-conscious about it yet. They have it, you know, before the bigger kids or teachers or parents or the world just like bash it out of you. She didn't really care what she looked like as she spun and then tumbled into a lump on the hall carpet because she just knew it was a fun, crazy thing to do with her body. And if you're only six years old, everything's really new to you. And so it's really fun and exciting. And I totally remember having that feeling like before you were even kind of aware of the fact that you had a body, in a sense, you just lived in it. You just took it for granted and you lived in it comfortably without really sort of thinking about it or the repercussions of spinning it until it fell down. Sort of before you were forced to think about it, like before your pediatrician told you that you were getting too fat or before your older sister made you feel too self-conscious, before it all got ruined by external forces that created self-doubt and self-loathing in you, not to get too personal, but before all that, before all that. Anna Samantha, she just wanted to spin. She just wanted to alter her reality a little bit. She wanted to change the feeling from standing upright, from seeing straight, to altering her her world for just a minute. Now, it got me wondering if kids who love to do that, who love to do that sort of altering their reality, do they tend up tend to grow up to abuse more substances? I mean, I didn't, except for, you know, a couple years in high school, college, but do they get hooked on distorting their reality? Do they need to constantly change their experience of the world? Do they need to reshape it for a few minutes or more every day? Do they become addicted? Do they need to make the hallways, you know, make the walls of the hallway seem round and blurry, not straight and square the way they really are? Or do they just channel that energy and go to work for big food companies and turn chicken slurry paste into little dinosaurs instead or corn powder and sugar into pink princess shaped cereals instead are we all just overgrown toddlers as i've said before in many shows trying to recapture that delicious feeling of being dizzy and seeing the world in a blur i mean i can't even go on a swing anymore without getting motion sickness but i love to make the world spin like that 40 years ago Maybe that's why we love to play with food and play with the natural shape of things. We love to mess around with nature. We love to alter stuff because maybe it's because we can't do it the way we did when we were kids. It's not really acceptable. So I've been wondering about 
this lately. You know, in my this is this has sort of become the season of the great pondering shows. My shows are more philosophical this season. I, I why can't we just accept the shape of things, the nature of things, our environment, our food, our our bodies? We can't accept the shape of those at all. That's for sure. I mean, they're all formed by nature, or at least by nature with our help or intervention, whether that's good or bad. And you know, having grown up struggling with with my weight, with weight issues my life, whole life, and struggling against my natural shape for four decades, I know this firsthand. I mean, I feel somewhat at peace now with my shape, and I decided years ago I just wouldn't waste any more precious energy on negative thinking about it, and if I'm around people who are doing that, I just walk away. I don't want to do it anymore. Instead, I just channel all that energy into crazy exercise now, which has conveniently also changed my shape, so it all works out for the better, but it's our nature, I think, as humans to seek out perfection, orderliness. I think we look for it. Either it's human nature or we've just been programmed by living in industrial times where we're used to standardization and and perfection. I don't know which one it is. I mean, think about it. When you go shopping for food, even I do it when I shop. I always grab you know, the shiniest, most perfectly shaped apple, the prettiest fruit, the straightest zucchini, the reddest red bell pepper. You just go for the best stuff because some of it is is intrinsic and it's programmed into us to seek out ripeness. We look at, for the brightest colors, the reddest berries. We're looking for ripeness because that's where we get or would have gotten our sugar before the food industry. But a lot of it, I think, is programming and it's perfection-driven by programming. It's different in the summer when I shop for food at farmers markets because there nothing looks perfect. It all looks a lot more normal and natural. Stuff is misshapen and bumpy and has uneven coloring and bare spots and freckles and weird warts on it. And actually food there it looks a lot more like people actually. Maybe we seek perfection in food to compensate for our so-called imperfections in ourselves. I don't know. Something to think about. Let's take a short break. Let's all ponder that, and we'll come back in a couple minutes. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides. Oh, reliable, your host. So yesterday I had an audition for a voiceover. You know, I do. Well, I try to do voiceover. I had an audition. It was a voiceover for Progresso Soup. Now, I know, I know, just everybody relax before things get out of control. I know you're horrified immediately thinking, how could she? How could she take money from the food industry to promote a processed canned soup? Who does she think she is? Talking about foodiness and then turning around and 
auditioning for Progresso. Well, everybody just shut up and calm down. Don't worry, because I never book anything. I just audition. So it's not an issue. Okay. I haven't booked anything in like a year. So everybody just relax. Although last week I did have an audition for Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts new Chips Ahoy and Oreo flavored iced coffees. Yeah. And I, as I was doing it, I thought, oh my God, what will my listeners think if they ever find out? And I was terrified that I'd finally actually book something and it would be that. And I would have to tell you all and you would lose respect and never listen to me again. But you can relax because it didn't happen. Because as I said, I never book anything. I just audition a lot. I sort of think of auditioning as my job. I just go, I audition. But in yesterday's audition, the the VO script, the copy for the voiceover, was something about a town called Vineland, home of Progresso. Or so they say. I think they mean Vineland, New Jersey. Are they talking about Vineland, New Jersey? Maybe there's Vineland, California. Probably. I don't know. But it was about how Progresso in Vineland intentionally uses and purchases the ugliest, most misshapen carrots to go into their vegetable soups because those carrots have the most surface area and therefore ostensibly the best flavor. Now, I'm not so sure about that science. I mean, it sort of sounds good to me. More surface area, more flavor. I don't, I'm not so sure about that. But what I do know is spin when I see it. Like little Anna Samantha, who I can't, whichever one it was, out in the hallway, just spinning and spinning and spinning and altering her reality and her perceptions, conveniently spinning and changing the facts to suit their marketing needs. Oh, we buy up all the misshapen carrots. It's because they taste better. That's why we do it. Now, look, as far as I'm concerned, Progresso can buy up all the misshapen, ugly carrots they want for practically pennies since they can't be sold at retail or used in other food processing, like to make so-called baby carrots, which are not shaped like babies, by the way. They're shaped like little stubs, not what babies look like. So that you can use those misshapen, ugly carrots in their soups. I'm totally fine with this because it's better they use them in their canned soup than they dump them or compost them or feed them to animals or whatever they're going to use, which happens to something like 40% of the agricultural products produced in the U.S. They wind up in dumps or in landfill. Did you know that? We throw out almost 40% of the food we produce. So what do I care if the carrots in my soup, well, not my soup because I make my own soup. I don't eat canned soup, aren't straight and perfect. I don't care about that. But the spin and the marketing machine is powerful. And lately, food waste has been making its way into the mainstream media, which is great. It's finally on the radar of the mainstream, and people are starting to think about it. So some ad agency genius somewhere put two and two together and came up with this campaign about using the ugly misshapen carrots because they taste better. So not only is Progresso being environmentally responsible, which is sort of the understatement of that, the unsaid statement of that, by using up all those reject carrots without overly stating it, but they use them intentionally because they taste better. It's brilliant. Wow. Does Don Draper work on the Progresso account? Did someone give Don the Progresso account? Maybe Peggy. Sounds a little bit more like a Peggy kind of campaign. Now, other than 
the huge carbon footprint involved in sourcing, growing, slaughtering, harvesting, cooking, packaging, metal manufacturing, paper making, shipping, and reheating involved in canned soup, I'm okay with their soup. I'd prefer that they use organic ingredients in their soup and that they slash all the added sodium from their soup. But otherwise, it's okay. Their labels are pretty clean. And I would rather see someone open a can of Progresso soup than eat at, let's say, Subway, for example. Now, the former head of Trader Joe's, Trader Joe's, which, you know, I do love my Trader Joe's, all they are grossly overpackaging things, and they need to work on that. But the former head of Trader Joe's is now starting a chain of food markets located in low-income neighborhoods where fresh produce has traditionally been hard to find. Food deserts, if you will. And he's going to intentionally sell all the ugly, lumpy, misshapen fruits and vegetables that regular supermarkets would otherwise discard. Because he said that after all his years at Trader Joe's, he's appalled by what gets discarded and how much is wasted, and he wants to change that. And good luck to him, because that is awesome. I would totally shop there if one opened near me. But everything that opens near me now is custom bridal shop and a custom perfume shop and custom soccer uniform shop and lots and lots of chain drugstores and banks. So I don't think I'm getting one of those. But he's also going to be selling packaged products that are at or near their expiration dates because most often those dates are determined by the manufacturer and not at all relative to anything about perishability other than wanting to turn over stock and protecting their brands. There's very little actual legislation about expiration dates, except for perishable things like milk. Otherwise, there are no laws about how long something can sit on the shelf. Expiration dates are purely random and applied by the manufacturer just to get stock to turn over and to get you to buy and throw away stuff. So a can of soup is still good 10 years later on the shelf. I mean, it may have lost quality, and it probably has a lot of BPA leached into it from the can itself, but the soup is still edible. Why toss it after a year on a shelf or three months or even three weeks? Someone is hungry somewhere. One in five Americans are hungry or suffer some level of food insecurity. So why are we throwing out 40% of our food? It's all about spin here too. Don't perceive that food is old or expired or bad because it's not. Let's spin this the other way. Let's change your perception, change your ideas about expiration and expiration dates. Oh, and also those markets he's starting, by the way, they're going to be nonprofit, which is also great. So good job, Trader Joe's guy, whatever your name is. I could have looked it up. You are a shining example of what to do. We're going to take another short break. When we come back, more philosophical musings. song here is called Communication by Fote. This is Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, you know who, your host. 
But can we really... No. What am I saying here? We can't really just leave stuff alone, can we, when it comes to food? We can't just have food. We can't just eat the weird-looking carrot. We can't just leave it alone, can we? It's bad enough that we waste tons and tons of food every year, but do we have to alter all that food first, too, and then potentially waste it? Do we have to F with it all the time, change its shape and color and flavor and size and smell just to keep it new and exciting and novel? It's food. Does it have to constantly be new and exciting and novel? Can't we just eat the basics? I mean, I just bought a 10-pound bag of lentils last week at Costco. 10 pounds of lentils for $7.99. I know I talk about this a lot, but seriously, what else is cheaper than that? And I'm going to be eating those lentils for the next two years several times a week. And I'm okay with that. Uh, It's okay. I mean, I'm a chef, so I know how to make them taste good, but... I'm okay with that. A hundred years ago, I'd have had no choice and neither would have you. And in most of the world, you still have no choice. I mean, your kid in Ethiopia, if you just plopped your kid down in Ethiopia, your kid wouldn't be able to choose the nuggets shaped like dinosaurs today, but shaped like stars tomorrow. And then the pink monster cereal Thursday, but the blue princess cereal on Friday, they would just eat. They would eat food and it would just be food whatever food was put in front of them. It wouldn't be monster-shaped food. How? That's how we did it. Not that long ago, that's what it was. Why do we need quite so many choices? Why do we need, on average, 40,000 different products in a supermarket? 40,000 different products. How many of them are actually food? Take a simple baked item. Simple, not even as simple as lentils, but a simple baked item. The croissant, classic French breakfast pastry. Officially not French, really, Viennese, but we'll call it French. The croissant. It's not so simple. I mean, if you've ever baked your own croissant, you know it's a two-day project involving lots of butter and flour, lots of rolling and folding and chilling and time and skill. Okay, so not so easy. And that's when... You know, that's what makes them so good is the time you put into them. They're special and they're delicious. Or if you buy them from someone who puts the time into them, special and delicious. I never eat them. I actually don't love them. But I mean, a good croissant is a good thing if it's made from good flour and real butter and it's quality product. Now, here in the U.S., our croissant, I think, is the donut where, you know, the croissant is like the archetypical French baked item. I think ours is the donut. And it's the same thing. If you take the time to make it right and you use good ingredients, a good donut can be a great thing if it's done well. Again, I don't really eat donuts either. I don't really like them. Call me un-American. And, you know, ditto the above. When it's made from real ingredients and eaten occasionally can be an amazing thing. So why the need to morph them? I know this is old news, the cronut. I get it. It's old, but the cronut thing, it was a smart gimmick. It worked. People love a gimmick and people love to line up for stuff thinking that they're in on something new. And it worked. People lined up for this gimmick and Dominique Ansel made a lot of money off of it. And that's great. His stuff is high quality. I wish I had thought of it. I personally don't like to line up for new stuff. I don't enjoy being in line. Although, you know, I personally wish I'd invented the cronut. But that ship has sailed. But as I was saying, why the need for constant novelty, the ever shape changing and spinning and evolving. Why all the morphing? 
Are we like Anna Samantha, six-year-olds who need constant stimulation, spinning, newness? Um, yeah, I think we are. I don't think we ever outgrow that. But do we really need the criss croissant? I can't even say it. Have you seen these newest monstrosities from IHOP? You know how I feel about IHOP. Oh, IHOP. Oh, IHOP. How I love you because thank you, thank you. Because without you, IHOP, I would have run out of material for new shows years ago. Years ago. But you never stop, do you? It's like when I'm in doubt, when I have nothing to talk about on the show, all I have to do is look at IHOP. In the wake following the cronut, the cruffin, the cragle, and all the other croissant, donut, muffin, bagel, smash-ups, and disasters that have come down the pipe since the cronut, you've really outdone them all. The latest IHOP breakfast bonanza is the Chris Croissant, which is their latest invention and is only available until April 15th, by the way, which is tax day. Coincidence? I think not. So you better hurry up if you want one. Now, the Chris Croissant is made from croissant dough, so they say. You think they use real butter in that? <laughs> Not for four ninety-five with eggs and pancakes on the side. I doubt it. It's made from croissant dough, which, of course, they pronounce croissant. Croissant, which is weird because, like, I don't get it. Because Americans, I understand, can't pronounce things. But Americans can say lasagna, not lasagna. So why the issue with croissant? But anyway, croissant dough, cut into a flat circle, raw, pressed into a waffle iron, baked flat in the waffle iron, then folded over something they call lemonade cream or cream cheesy filling with fruity toppings and called the criss croissant because, you know, the waffle iron gives it a crisscross pattern. You get it? It's kind of genius when you think about it. Now, if you go to the IHOP website to do research, which is where I do all my research, there's even a video on there that's sort of like a faux documentary. It's like a mockumentary slash reality show about the chefs of the IHOP test kitchen. Because that's a thing. You can be a chef in a test kitchen, in a development kitchen for those sorts of companies. I know some of them. I even considered being one a few years ago going into that business. Yeah, could you imagine spending your day developing new, disgusting things for IHOP? I can't even imagine. Being the people basically responsible for the obesity of America. It's a big load on your shoulders, literally. So anyway, this little faux documentary shows the test kitchen chefs, who are all men, and the woman who heads the test kitchen, which I thought was interesting, all hard at work around their workstations, playing around with waffle irons, trying all sorts of variations until they hit upon this crispy brown gold mine, the Chris Croissant. Antonin Carême, the famous French chef, would be choking on his foie gras right about now. But you got to give it to IHOP, though. They never stop innovating. They never stop morphing and spinning and changing. They are always pushing the boundaries, looking for the new. The motto of the IHOP test kitchen is pushing the boundaries of breakfast. And I guess as long as those boundaries are actually made up of white flour, sugar, hydrogenated vegetable fats, and canned fruit toppings, the variations are endless. And what's lemonade cream, anyway, by the way? They wouldn't even explain what lemonade cream was. Blech. So why must we fight the natural order? 
the natural shapes of things. Why do we rage against the shape? Why? Why does a marshmallow have to be molded into a peep shape instead of just being kept in its naturally occurring marshmallow shape? Why aren't baby carrots actually shaped like babies? I mean, I've never seen a baby that was the shape of a baby carrot. Why do we mess with stuff like that? Like Renee Zellweger's face or anything Kardashian. Isn't nature enough? Didn't the Pope even just this week make some statement about cosmetic surgery and how it's screwing with God's natural order of things? I bet he's never eaten a croissant unless he thinks that the crisscross part of it is some kind of religious symbolism and it's meant to be eaten on Easter Sunday morning in a crowded IHOP full of obese peep-stuffed churchgoers. Maybe he will. And don't even get me started on peeps-flavored milk, which came out this week and has been making the rounds on the media, too. I saw that one. I, I can't even comment. I'm going to have to sit on that one for a while before I get around to it. But until then, until we get to peeps-flavored milk, just remember that if you don't want to eat shit and you don't want to be a shape changer and you don't want to spin so hard you fall down, keep on listening to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wise. You can also check out the Let's Get Real website, letsgetrealshow.com, where you can listen to all our shows. You can also check out my website now, which is ericawides.com. Please go to heritageradionetwork.org to listen to any of our other shows and to join us because we are member-supported and we count on you. You can follow me on Twitter also at Let's Get Real Show. So many options. Thanks to Jack Inslee in the control room, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.